Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is Proverbs 23:23. It reads, Buy truth and do not sell it. By wisdom, instruction, and understanding. There are four things you should buy today, and make sure your pantry is well stocked with them. However, there's not a store that sells them. They are truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding. There's only one way to buy something, you have to pay for it. And in this case, all buying requires that you rank your desires, since there's no one that can afford everything. You spend your limited resources by the priorities that you set. And here Solomon tells you to put truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding at the top of your shopping list. We'll briefly examine each of these. First of all, truth. Jesus at his trial, in his discourse with Pilate in John 18 says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responded, as we well know, with, he said, what is truth? God is the essence of truth, and this quality should be reflected in the character of his children. And falsehood is condemned by the scripture, particularly in legal context, but truth is praised and advocated throughout. God takes pleasure in truth and honesty, which are marks of an upright Christian person. Wisdom is the prudent ability to discern what is right and what is wrong. Wisdom is to be prized. It should be pursued by all means. All means should be taken to obtain it. It may be bought without money. It should be asked of from God, who gives liberally, James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom, once obtained, should be held on to fast. Instruction is being teachable to learn from others that are wiser than you. Instruction can be gained from the trustworthiness of scripture, the instruction of the gospel, and the instruction of wisdom. These, the lessons learned should be valued like gold and silver, and diligently sought after, and all should be held to fast and not parted with. Like wisdom, understanding gives much, involves much more than taking in facts and just retaining them. It is knowing the value and the use of truth and wisdom. Grasping understanding of divine and spiritual things brings contentment and happiness. Proverbs 3 says, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Antithetical to this gaining of truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding is an arrogant and self-centered life existence and a self-centered view of the world. Unwillingness to receive truth leads to spiritual darkness and eter eternal separation from communion with God. And this reminds us of our need to confess our sins. I invite you to kneel where you are if you're willing and able. My sermon today will involve 
a couple of things from this passage that are really uh, rather incidental uh, to to the story. Uh, back home, I've been preaching through Acts, and we have been rejoicing in all of the uh, events in the book of Acts. And when we came to chapter nine, I, I naturally started out by you know, focusing on the main themes, the, the big ideas of chapter nine. And once we had done that, then we went back to look at some interesting details uh, along the way. Um, the, uh, it, it, I, I feel a little funny uh, not talking to you about main themes from the passage, uh, but about details because as many of you know, details can be very dangerous in the scripture, particularly if you, if you get out your, your microscope and, and you focus in on those details without a thoroughgoing understanding of the whole flow of scripture and, and, the, and the, the immediate context. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, details and passing comments in various passages of scripture can also be very eye-opening and, and enlightening if you keep in mind the, the broader context and, and the, the flow of scripture. Sometimes in those details, as you read through the word, there will uh, patterns, certain patterns of thought and belief and behavior uh, will be seen. And, and those patterns can be very helpful to us when it comes to understanding aright the big things, uh, the big topics in, in Scripture. So, uh, uh, well, so many people back home encouraged me to preach this sermon to you today, so I decided to do it. And so with your indulgence, we will look at a couple of of details uh, in this passage that I believe to be truly instructive. The first is that rhetorical question uh, that the Lord Jesus puts to Saul when, when he accosts him on the way to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There are, there are wonderful, uh, heartwarming implications in those words. And the second detail I want to talk about is the curious fact that Saul, though a believer in the risen, reigning, ruling Christ, did not receive the Spirit apart from the ministry of Ananias, the servant of God. Um, if you know the book of Acts, you know that there is a pattern there as well in the coming of the Spirit and receiving of, of grace and, and the Spirit through the, the laying on of hands of apostles, or of, uh, in this case, not an apostle, but uh, certainly a, a uh, leader and representative of, of Christ's church. Uh, those two incidents, the Lord's question to, to Saul and Ananias coming and laying on of hands and then Saul receives the Spirit, 
those two incidents are, are actually related. The implications of those two things are related. And I, I want to show you how they are related. Um, and so, so that you will know ahead of time what I'm driving at, uh, I, I want to tell you that they have implications for our understanding of the role of the church. The role of the church when it comes to ministering the saving grace of Christ to those who have come to believe in him. And this, brethren, is important for us because uh, of the, the Zwinglian and Anabaptist heresies that are so prevalent uh, in, in our own time, even, even dominant in our own time, in, in modern evangelicalism, these false teachings uh, dominate. We want to escape these false teachings and we want to be biblical Christians. Well, let's have a go. Uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What amazing words those are. Uh, is, is that what Saul thought he was doing, uh, do you suppose? Uh, was, was that Saul's own point of view? Was he, was he persecuting Jesus? My guess is that it never crossed his mind to think of it that way. But brethren, we should have all learned by now that things are what Jesus says they are. That's where reality and, and truth is found. Saul's own assessment of what he was doing is quite irrelevant. Uh, the Lord's assessment of what he is doing is what matters. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Those are the words of Christ. And there is, there is certainly something in those words about the emotional connection that the Lord Jesus has with his people. Uh, I've, I've heard that application made, and it's, it's absolutely true and, and, and right. When, when Christians are being persecuted and ill-treated, Jesus takes it personally. Uh, when you are persecuted and ill-treated by the world, Jesus Christ takes it personally. There absolutely is that kind of emotional attachment that he has to you, and, and that's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Still, there is more going on here than an expression of the Lord's emotional attachment, as, as wonderful as, as that is. Persecuting the church of Christ is persecuting Christ. That's what Jesus said. That's what it is. It is persecuting Christ. Why? It is because of the true union that God has created between Christ and his church. The two have become one. We are one with Christ. I don't think we think about this nearly enough. And 
I don't think we appreciate it uh, nearly enough. You know, it is frequent that we don't understand how a spiritual realities work. How do, how do they work? But even when we do not understand the mechanics involved in, in some spiritual truth that the scripture reveals to us, even if we can't explain the mechanics of it, we are still obliged to humbly receive that spiritual truth and, and humbly believe something that may be uh, not quite within our grasp uh, as far as how do you explain it, how, how do you understand it. The spiritual things revealed in scripture are real. They are, they are more real, if, if anything, they are more real than the physical realities that we can dissect and, and study and, and explain. And among those spiritual realities, brethren, is this. Jesus and his church have truly become one. They are truly inseparable. That is a spiritual reality. The Apostle Paul would later write uh, Ephesians 5.30, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. He goes on, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and uh, be joined unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, This is a great mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. There is a spiritual reality that we must embrace. We have become one with Christ. Christ and his church are one. And brethren, that, that true and inseparable unity between Jesus Christ and his church, that has implications. That, that has big implications at frankly that that many Protestants in their overreaction against Rome uh, do not believe uh, and sometimes flatly deny first of all let's let's approach it this way first of all your in, in your whole definition of what the church is you must never leave Jesus out. Uh, here's what I mean by that. Ask uh, a, a, any evangelical Christian or a, a typical evangelical Christian, what is the church? And, and you will get an answer like this. You will get that the church is not, the church is not a building. The church is not an institution. It's not an organization. But the church is God's people. It's the people. They are the church. All believers, wherever they might be, these make up the true church of Christ. What's the problem with that definition? It, uh, there is an important point to be made here. Gather all the believers in Christ who have ever lived and who are alive now or whoever will live and gather them all 
in one place do you have the church? Not without Christ. Not unless Jesus is there too. What in the world is a body without a head? You see. So, so brethren, when we come together on Sunday, when we in Greenville, or, or you here in Howell, when we come together on Sunday, can we call ourselves a church? Not unless Jesus is there also. Then we are the church. Jesus and his people together, bound, inseparable, unified, one. That is the church. Do you see the importance of the doctrine of the real presence of Christ when we come together? That's just a, a detail that I'm noticing when Jesus says, persecuting the church is persecuting me. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That verse is a primary example of the damage that is often done when you get your magnifying glass out and look at a verse and remove it from its context. That verse uh, in Matthew 18 is not talking about a few uh, Christians gathered in the break room at, at, um, at the factory. It is not talking about that at all. Look at the context and you will see that Jesus was talking about his church. His point was and is that no matter how small your church is, when you are gathered together, I am there in the midst of you in a way that I am nowhere else. In the same way that the um, omnipresent God was present in his Old Testament temple, he was there and present in a way that he was not present anywhere else on earth. You see, brethren, it, it is not enough to say that the church is the people, all the people who belong to Christ. The church is Jesus with his people, joined, united, inseparable. And that is why when Saul made havoc of the church, Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is exactly what Saul was doing. If I attack your hand, I attack you. Because you are your hand and your hand is you. There's, you no, one, no one would ever think that way, right? Oh, you've attacked my hand, but I won't. But you're not attacking me. That, that, that's, that, that's nonsense. Uh, brethren, we are the body of Christ. We are united and joined to him. The church is not the church without Jesus. But now, here's the, uh, 
Here's the uh, tricky part. I just said the church is not the church without Jesus because of the real, true, genuine union, the oneness that has been created. What if we say it the other way? What if, what if we were to say Jesus is not Jesus without the church? Ooh. <laughs> Does that make you squirm uh, a, a, a little bit? Is it a shocking thing to say? Does it seem borderline blasphemous to say that? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul again in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He put all things, God the Father put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Brethren, it, it might be blasphemous if I were making it up, but what if the Holy Trinity, in long before time, decided that they wanted it to be that way? Uh, what, that the salvation of God's chosen would be so great a salvation that there would be a true spiritual unity with Christ and his church, not just in some emotional way, not just in some theoretical way, not just in some figurative way, but in a way that is real and inviolable and unchangeable. It is not a blasphemous thing to say because God himself is the one who ordained it and brought it to pass. It is that way because God wanted it that way so that the greatness of his grace would be magnified and so that you and I might be forever astonished at the extent to which God has gone in truly uniting us to Jesus Christ. Again, it, it is not necessary to understand the mechanics of spiritual realities. You can spend the rest of your life trying to craft phrases that will describe this unity with Christ in his church, and then you can have great debates with other people who have also tried to craft phrases to describe it over whether they have done a better job or whether whether you have done a better job. Uh, if, if that is your inclination, you can do that. But what is absolutely essential is that we believe and that we embrace what God has said in his word. Uh, and, and again, this has enormous implications. If Jesus is the head, and we are, the church is his body, if, if Jesus and the church are one and cannot be separated, now let me ask another question. What does this imply when uh, regarding the whole idea, the whole concept of coming 
to Jesus. What does that imply if Jesus and his church are one, united, inseparable? And brethren, this is where the ministry of Ananias uh, ties in. Saul of Tarsus did not receive the Spirit in a moment of personal, private belief. Did he? He did not. His relationship with Jesus Christ was not a just Jesus and me relationship, was it? Uh, it was through the ministry of the Church of Christ that he was baptized into Christ and that he actually received the Holy Spirit. It was in connection with them. It was Christ working through his body, the church, to do his work in the earth, his saving, redeeming work. So, now do you see how these two incidentals that I'm, I'm pulling out are related to each other. Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? And the fact that Saul does not receive the Spirit until Ananias comes and lays on lays hands. Brethren, both speak of the real unity between Christ and his church and that they cannot be pulled apart. They cannot be separated. Uh, separated. Uh, the, the fact is that through the church, his body, that is how Christ does his work in the world. Scott Wesley Brown, a long time ago, wrote this in one of his songs. Don't go to church before you go to Jesus. And he was and, and is uh, typical in his evangelical beliefs. Our our country is, in fact, chock full of people who say that they have believed in Jesus and that they are united to him while they stand aloof from the church of Christ or deny the efficacy of the sacraments that God delivered to the church for bringing grace to humble believing people. And brethren, the notion that we can have Jesus without the church, and that we can have grace and forgiveness of Christ totally separate from the ministry of the church. Brethren, this is bad hippie theology. It is unbiblical Theology, and we have, uh, because of when and, and where we live, we have all been tainted with it. It overlooks a basic and pervasive doctrine in the New Testament the doctrine that Jesus and his church are one. You see, he does his good work through his body the church. You cannot have one without the other. Now, let's, let's tie this in uh, to a couple of quotes from Christ uh, himself. Uh, this is 
This is Matthew 16, uh, beginning in verse 15. Uh, he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Most modern Protestants have no uh, interpretation of that passage. Uh, they can only tell you what they don't believe it means. Uh, the uh, conservative Lutherans and, and conservative Anglicans being, being notable exceptions. But brethren, when you read that passage, does that sound like coming to Jesus and coming to the church, coming to his church, are things, some, things that could be separated, diced, sliced, divided? Absolutely not. Listen to the Lord again. Uh, John 20, verses 21 through 23. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, so also I send you. And when he said this, he breathed upon them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Does that sound like coming to Jesus and coming to the church are two different things? Or is it one thing? Because Jesus and his church are one, are united. Well, brethren, the, the incidentals in scripture are important. And uh, again, when you, when you look at them and you step back and you observe them and you see patterns of thought, patterns of belief, patterns of behavior that are woven through the stories and, and the passages of Scripture. It will help to keep you on track uh, when it comes to the application and understanding of the major themes in the Word of God. Let's make just three final applications concerning the true unity of Christ and His Church in this world. First application is simply take the liturgy seriously. Take the liturgy seriously. This meeting in which we are involved today is no mere formality. This is the place that Jesus Christ meets with his people and performs his high priestly ministry to them. This is the appointed place and time. It is here that Jesus has promised to meet you and hear your confession and proclaim your forgiveness through his minister and 
give you true union with him, union with his body and blood for your ongoing assurance and comfort. Brethren, that is what coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus looks like. That's what it looks like. Uh, second thing, I, it, it's sure to come to mind, what shall we say of the vast numbers who claim to know Jesus, uh, trust Jesus, love Jesus, be saved by Jesus, but stand aloof from the church, which is his body, or who deny um, the grace that Christ alone can give is imparted through the sacraments of the church, through the ministry of his word and sacraments performed by the body of Christ. What shall we say? Some of these people are sincere, some not so much. Will the sincere ones uh, be saved? Uh, brethren, in, in an age of profound ignorance, when so many people have never even heard of God's true religion and the way he has set it up and the way it works. Will the ignorant be excused? I, I can only answer and say, please don't ask me to be the judge of that. And you know what? You don't have to try to be the judge either. Just don't be one of them. Don't be one. See and embrace the consistent teaching of Scripture as it is declared in the main themes and as you find it woven in the, in the details and the incidentals as you read through the Word of God. Finally, let me say this to you. Don't evangelize like an evangelical. Don't preach their gospel. Preach the gospel that Peter preached in Acts 2 and 3 and 10. Preach the gospel that Ananias preached to Saul and that Paul the Apostle preached at Mars Hill. Don't say this. Jesus died for your sins and now he is just waiting for you to tell him that you accept his gift. Where did that come from? Well, I know where it came from. But brethren, that is not the apostolic faith. Say this instead. Say, God has raised Jesus from the dead. He has exalted him to his right hand. He has given him all authority in heaven and earth. He will judge. He is the one who will judge every man. He will pour out his wrath upon his enemies. But he has mercy for those enemies who repent. Now come and be baptized and wash away your sins, as Ananias said to Saul. And come, become, become one 
with those people who weekly come to the Lord's temple and receive of his body and blood and receive of his mercy and grace and forgiveness of sins. Become one of those people. Evangelize that way and you will be spreading the gospel of Peter and Paul and Christ. Let us pray. This is a wedding feast that's before us. Each week we renew covenant with God. And it's not because somehow the covenant expired at midnight on Saturday. It's not because you have sinned just one too many times and God has kicked you out and now demands you to come back to him begging. No, God renews covenant with us because he loves us. He renews covenant with his people, his church, because he loves to go over the story again and again. And yes, when he goes over the story, he's healing us just a little bit more each time. He's reminding us again and again because we forget so often, don't we? He's reminding us because he loves us. He delights in us. He is the great bridegroom, the faithful husband, who comes again and again to fight for his church, his bride, to defend his bride, and to assure his bride. But this also means that each week we're faced with and reminded that we used to be married to someone else. We're all divorcees. We're all from broken families, broken homes. Maybe your parents are still married, and maybe you're still married to your first spouse. It's a wonderful thing. But I'm talking about your former affair with sin, and our lust for darkness, our covenant with death. God invites us here each week to remind us of who we are and who we are in Christ. The old ways die hard, and sometimes we are tempted to think that we're still married to that old ogre through that abuser, that old way of life. But at this table, Jesus assures us that the old way is dead. It was nailed to a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. So leave it behind. You are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by what others did to you. You are not defined by the brokenness in this world or the brokenness of your own life. You are defined by Jesus Christ. And in him, you are righteous. You are clean. You are holy. You are completely new. Now look, you're married into a new family, a family that's being knit together by the Holy Spirit. Look around you. This is part of your family right here. This is your people. Welcome home. And you're at home, and you're invited to this Lord's table if you have been baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you're under authority and in a good standing with Christ and his body, the church, by eating the bread and drinking the wine together, we are acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God, and that we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, 
please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWingle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.